Bible on your lap, we'll get to it eventually. You know what we're going through here. And uh, I appreciate uh, the attention you folks have paid last few weeks uh, for the offertories. Uh, these ladies uh, work on the offertory. It is a special when they get up there. They're not just killing time while our ushers go through, uh, but they're prepared and they're doing a special, and it's uh, such a blessing to see people paying attention and listening to that. You know, the offering time really isn't a time to fellowship. Fellowship time is before church, after church, but offering time, somebody's doing a special. Now, I'll make you a deal. If I ever get up here and play my guitar for the offering, you're allowed to talk then. It'll cover up all the mistakes I make, so that'll, then it'll be okay. But uh, these ladies up here, they're, they're working hard at these, these specials, and uh, appreciate you giving them your attention. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we come to you this evening. We thank you again so much for church. We thank you for Sundays, Lord, where we can spend time under your word and sing praises to thee, fellowshipping one with another, getting a little rest. Lord, uh, thank you, Father, for uh, just a good day. And uh, I guess heaven will be uh, seven Sundays a week, Lord, if, there are the, if you do determine time up there. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for the time we have down here. A little touch of heaven, I guess, is what we can experience here. Uh, Lord, I do pray tonight that you would... Um, give wisdom in the uh, dealing with this subject. And Lord, this is a difficult subject. And Lord, I pray you'd put a watch by my mouth and a guard by my lips. And Lord, I'm just a piece of dirt. And uh, you need to fill it with your spirit and your power, your passion, your words, and your wisdom. Because without that, it can do absolutely nothing but make a mess. And so Lord, I pray that you would put a watch by my mouth, a guard by my lips, give me grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Lord, help us all to understand and be better prepared in dealing with things. But Lord, thank you again for the time of fellowship we have. And it's a shame, Lord, but we live in a very wicked world. And things are coming at us left and right from different directions. And we've got to be able to stand against this stuff. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight. And we'll thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week we began looking at, and I, I think I told you, we, we covered the racism. We covered racism quite thoroughly, and uh, we touched on the civil rights movement. And uh, I don't have a problem with the civil rights movement. I have a problem with Martin Luther King's connection to the Communist Party. That has been proven. But I, I don't have a problem with, with, uh, uh, with the civil rights movement. I watched what happened to them when they crossed the bridge in Selma, Alabama. You can see, you can Google it. You can see what, what was going on there. And all of it was because of the color of their skin. And we went through all of that stuff, we went through all the history of that. And uh, now I personally believe it's gone a little too far in the other direction. It's like a pendulum swinging. It swings one way and then it swings that way. Eventually it hits a uh, median there. And I think we'll, we'll get to that eventually if the Lord tarries. But we've also seen how the um, alphabet people have hijacked the civil rights movement and the methods of the civil rights movement, what have you, to try to gain their rights using the same argument, except they're missing one thing. That if you're born with a different color skin, that's you were born with that. If you choose to live a lifestyle of the LGBTQ, WD40, NCAA, NFL, whatever, uh, that's your choice. And there's no, we've looked at, uh, we'll look at it some more, there's no gen genetic um, uh, 
thing going on, uh, which says that you're born a particular way and what have you. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into it. Um, that's the difference. Uh, one is a, I'm, you know, I'm born, I've, I was born uh, in Toledo, Ohio. Did I choose to be born in Toledo? No one would be born, choose to be born in Toledo, Ohio, to be honest with you. But I was born in Toledo. That wasn't my choice. I was born of, you know, my mom and dad. That wasn't my choice. Um, that's just the way it is. But as far as sin is concerned, there's where we make our choices. And just because you've chosen to live a particular sinful lifestyle, why do you think the government should sanction that? Why do you think that's covered in the Constitution? We'll talk about that. But anyway, in dealing with this stuff, I, we started on this a couple Sundays ago. Uh, the, one of the things that the advocates for that lifestyle will do is, it's called the politics of personal destruction, um, when criticized or when challenged with facts, all they know how to do is to call names. And that's uh, in debate, that's called, <laughs> I forgot it again, that is called, anybody know? Ad hominem. Ad hominem. Thank you very much. Who said that? All right, you get the sucker for tonight. Uh, ad hominem, and that's a personal attack. I can't answer your arguments, I'm too stupid, but I'm going to attack you for one reason or another. And so we'll be labeled homophobic. Wow, you guys are homophobic. And that makes it sound like a psychological disorder. Do you realize it's not a psychological disorder? Uh, you know, you put phobia on something and that makes it sound so scientific, and it's not. But it's used as a, a means of or a strategy to intimidate someone to not say anything. Oh, I don't want to be called homophobic, so I'm not going to say anything. And therefore, there are, their position is never challenged. And those that do challenge it know they're going to have to face an onslaught of insults and labels, and they're going to have to go survive that to continue to make their point. If you look at the general definition of homophobia, it's this. Homophobia encompasses a range of negative attitudes and feelings towards homosexuality or people who identify or are perceived as being lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Negative attitude and feelings. That's not a psychological disorder, folks. It's a negative attitude and negative feelings. I have negative attitudes and negative feelings toward the Green Bay Packers. Am I a, do I have Packerophobia? You know. And I'm, I'm telling you, this year when the Bears start beating them, and they will, you know, then these cheeseheads are going to flip out. Listen, you want a psychological disorder? It's walking around with a fake chunk of cheese on your head. That, to me, is a psychological disorder. So what is our position? Okay, call me whatever you want to call me. Here's our position. We have a moral disapproval of sinful behavior. We have a God-given, uh, uh, my thesaurus in my brain is not working now. We have a God-given call, if you will, to stand against evil. So uh, we stand against their sinful behavior, or behaviors that are destructive, and they are destructive to them and to society, or they are just simply contrary to God's will. And that's different than any kind of fear or what have you. We're just standing against something that is morally wrong and will hurt you. Okay? I remember preaching down at Beale Street in Memphis, Tennessee, and we would always 
we got a lot more hassle, I think, from the Baptists down there uh, than from the, uh, from the drunkards and what have you. And um, they, would, they would come up. They were from a Bellevue Baptist Church, biggest Baptist church in the, in the country. I think it still is. Adrian Rogers was the pastor uh, for years. I think he's gone home to be with the Lord or what have you, and somebody else is running it. But there, that crowd would be down there, and it's like, what are you doing down here? You know, here you are. You're Baptist. You're going to be in church tomorrow morning, probably. What's the attraction down here? But they would come up to us and they would say, why are you down here? Why are you here? I'd say, i tell you why I'm here. I'm looking at people that are exercising sinful lifestyles and are involved in things that are going to hurt them, they're going to destroy their lives, they're going to destroy their marriages, and I'm not about to sit around and say or do nothing. I'm going to be here to try to do something about it. And they look at me and go, oh. <laughs> and that's our position. Why do we oppose homosexuality? Oh, it's yucky. No, that's not why we oppose it. We oppose it because that lifestyle is detrimental to the individual, and I can give you all the statistics you want. It's detrimental to society, and I can give you the statistics you, you need if you want them. It's detrimental to a country. If you don't believe that, ask the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain how, how beneficial that was for them. I mean, you honestly think about it. If, if the whole country was LGBTQ, we would last one generation. God founded society on the family and the family's ability to reproduce and the family's ability to educate and train and nurture so when they reproduce, they can train their children the same way and that's, the, what, that's what works. That's worked since the beginning. And any society that has given itself over to the alphabet people has never worked. We'll talk more about that. So you're labeled as a homophobe. And I've had people call me that and say, oh, you're a theophobe then, huh? or you're a Christophobe, or you're a, a bibliophobe. That's what you are. And sometimes just hitting them back with the same thing, you know, uh, shocks them. We're also labeled as intolerant. And I don't know if you've read your Bible closely enough, but there are virtues in the Bible. There are fruits of the Spirit in the Scripture. There are a lot of good things that are advocated, and tolerance is not one of them. Tolerance is not one of them. Um, I mean, it may be virtuous in some instances, but charity and love are what are mentioned in the Bible. And neither charity nor love condones sin. Okay? If you want to look up the word tolerable, it shows up six times in your Bible. And it's in a very negative sense. It's in the sense of judgment. Jesus preached in northern Galilee, he preached at Chorazin, he preached at Bethsaida, he preached at Capernaum, Bethsaida, these other cities around there. He did a number of miracles up there. And after three years, they rejected him. And he said this, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the works had been, that had been done in, in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they would have rep repented and, and, and believed. But it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you at the day of judgment. Okay? What's he saying? He's saying there are degrees of hell, and Sodom and Gomorrah is going to kind of have it less than you are. 
Because I did this stuff right in front of you, and Sodom and Gomorrah was 1,800 years away from when I walked the earth. But it's, it involves judgment. Oh boy, there's tolerableness. In the, well, is that something to rejoice about? I'm not going to burn in the hottest part of hell? Oh boy, that's something to rejoice about, right? And six times that's a reference. Then there are, there are words that imply toleration. And if you would, look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is speaking to one of the churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, or Thyatira. Excuse me, Ephesus, Ephesus, Smyrna, or Pergamos. One of those two in chapter, three in chapter two. Revelation 2, verse 20. He says this, notwithstanding, and the Lord would always bring out good things they had done first when he addresses the church, and then he brings out the negative. So he says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce uh, my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idol. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. What did he say? You're tolerating that. And he said, I've got that against you. You don't tolerate sinful behavior. You don't tolerate somebody advocating false doctrine. You deal with it. First um, Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I know we've gone over this a little bit before, but let's just keep going with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you know what's going on. Starting at verse 1, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. That's what's going on. And the church knew about it. And instead of dealing with it, look at verse 2. And ye are puffed up. You think it's great. You were probably running around saying, isn't the grace of God wonderful? We're saved by grace. We can do anything we want to do. He said, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. You should be dealing with this sin, but instead you're tolerating it. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You say, well, isn't love tolerance? No, it's not. Unlike the word tolerance, none of these virtues, including love, none of these virtues implies any reduction of moral resolve against sinful behavior. God loves us, but he doesn't condone our, condone our sin. He loves us and wants us in heaven, and so to get us there, he had to deal with our sin. And so God loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how he had to deal with our sin. He never condoned it. He had to judge our sin in the person of Christ, shed the blood to wash us from our sins, and rise again from the dead. He never condoned it. If he condoned sin, he would have never died on the cross. And if the LGBTQ behavior is indeed sin, then you cannot use the word tolerance because you can never, ever tolerate sin. You can never, ever tolerate sinful behavior. I didn't say you couldn't be merciful. I didn't say you couldn't be kind. I didn't say you could try to lead that person to Christ. I said you cannot tolerate their behavior. Okay? 
will also be called hateful. Oh, you're hateful. You're haters. And a lot of times Christians are set back at that. Oh, I don't want to be a hater. You know, I want to be a loving Christian. I don't want to be a hater. And the problem is, again, Christians haven't studied their Bible to understand about hate in the Bible. Go to Psalm 97. What if I told you this? There's a good kind of hate. There's a righteous kind of hate. What if I told you this? That God himself hates. <gasps> you know, that would blow the mind of the average evangelical sitting in their rock and roll church tonight. No, not tonight. They don't have Sunday night service. Uh, Sunday morning or Saturday night. That would blow their mind because they have no concept of a God that hates, but the Bible does. Psalm 97, verse 10. Ye that love the Lord do what? Hate evil. I'm supposed to hate evil. And if I can show from Scripture where the LGBTQ lifestyle is evil and their actions are sinful, I hate their actions. Psalm 119, go there. Psalm 119 has three references. Psalm 119, 104. Psalm 119, 104. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Well, what did he just say? I read the Bible and I'm figuring things out. I believe the word of God and I'm understanding some things. Therefore, based on my understanding of scripture, I hate every false way. Wouldn't you? If you had, if there were a group of doctors and a couple of them were really good doctors and the rest of them were kind of quacks, probably worked for the VA, <laughs> no offense. A couple of them were kindly, you know, quacks and made, you know, had been uh, um, dealt with about mistakes they had made and all that. <sighs> Which one would you choose to go to? You're going to go to the doctor that doesn't have the malpractice suits and has been accused of doing, doing dumb stuff. Say, doctors don't do dumb stuff. Yeah, they do. There was a, there was a hospital in Toledo, Ohio. It's closed now. But it was called Riverside Hospital. I was doing a roofing job, and we met a guy that came out. Uh, he had a, a false leg. What do they call those? What, say that again? Prosthetic. Prosthetic. Thank you. And he came out and he began to tell us the story. He said, yeah. He said, I went to Riverside Hospital. They were supposed to do surgery on this leg, and I woke up, and this was missing. Boy, did he have a good lawsuit from that. You say, doctors don't make mistakes. They absolutely do. They made so many of them that now if you're going to have surgery on a particular leg, they put an X on it. And they make sure, you know, what leg are we, what leg are we working on? That one right there. Okay, we're working on that one right there, you know. Yeah, they make mistakes. If you had a choice between a doctor that doesn't have any malpractice suits and a doctor that has had malpractice suits, uh, you'd pick the ones that were doing it the right way. And you would despise the people that are doing it the false way. And this is what he's saying here. I hate every false way. Whether it be a person making a mistake, whether it be a, a cultic leader that's preaching false doctrine, whatever it may be, not only do I dislike it, I hate every false way. Well, why would I hate every false way? The damage that is done. Now that man, I believe, had forgiven the doctor for what he'd done after he'd gotten a good lawsuit settlement. That's why he could afford the roof that we were giving him when I was working for a roofing company. You'd have to win a lawsuit to afford the way what they charged. But, I mean, you know, 
their, 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 what would your feeling be toward that doctor that cut off the good leg and didn't do what they were supposed to do with the bad leg? There would be feelings of hatred there. Psalm 119, 128. Look what he says. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. The Bible's right. And things that are advocated that are against the Bible, I hate every false way. He says it again. I hate every false way. So I hate the teaching of Mormonism, and I hate the teaching of Islam, and I hate the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses, and I hate the teachings of Roman Catholicism, and you give me the cult, I'm going to tell you I'll hate it. Because only the Bible is correct, and only the Bible way is correct. And why would I hate what the Mormons teach? Because they're sending people to hell. Why would I hate what Jehovah Witnesses teach? Because they're sending people to hell. Why would I hate what Islam teaches? Because they're sending people to hell. Psalm 119, look at 163. Psalm 119, 163. I hate and abhor lying, but the law do I love. The psalmist said, I hate it when people lie to me. Well, he, had a, he would have had a great time in our political theater here in 2024. But he says, I hate lying. I abhor it. That's even deeper than hate. So what do you think about lying? Well, as long as they don't lie to me. <laughs> now, we, we should hate the stuff that God says is worthy of hatred. Look at Psalm 139. Go to Psalm 139. Here's an interesting verse. Psalm 139. <clears throat> Look at verse 21 and read it carefully. The psalmist says, do not I hate them. I believe that's a personal pronoun, plural. Plural, personal pronoun, what would you call it? That's people. That's people. He said, do not I hate them. Do I hate these people, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them, verse 22, with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Now, you've heard time and time again you're supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. And generally speaking, that's probably a good attitude to have. But don't ever think that that's a doctrinal position. Because there are some people that, apparently from the psalmist here, it's okay to hate them that hate the Lord. He said, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I said, what's a perfect hatred? I don't know. That's why I don't try to practice that. I'll take the position of trying to love the sinner and hate the sin, even though that's not technically, biblically accurate. Because I don't know what perfect hatred is. But don't let anybody ever tell you you can't hate people. I've got evidence right here, two verses that say I can. Beyond that, go to Proverbs chapter 6. We have a God who is balanced. I've mentioned that last week. God is a balanced God. He has love and he has grace and he has mercy. He has justice and he has holiness. He has the capability to love and he has the capability to hate. Look what he says in Proverbs chapter 6. And look at verse 16. These six things that the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination. Abomination is the next step after hate. So God hates seven things, and then he gives the list of things that he hates. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. 
By the way, when you read that list in Proverbs chapter 6, when you get to number 7, which is say, yea, 7 are an abomination, number 7 is they that sow discord among the brethren. So, you know, you may be this or this or this or that particular sin, which God hates sin. But if you sow discord among the brethren, God absolutely, absolutely, absolutely hates that. You better be careful. There are people who go into churches, probably people going to some churches tonight that are running their mouths and all oh, the preachers this, the preachers that, and you know, this church ain't right about this and this church ain't right about that. You better be careful. Because God says that's an abomination to me. Revelation chapter 2, and look at verse 6. Again, he's addressing, I believe, here the church at uh, Smyrna. It's not Ephesus because he didn't find anything wrong with Ephesus. No, he did find something wrong. He said, I'm about to move your candlestick out. I believe this is the church at Smyrna. He says, but thou, this thou hast, and maybe it is Ephesus, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The deeds of the Nicolaitans were people are trying to elevate their position, the clergy, above the laity. Okay? And so they had priests that were controlling the laity, and then you had bishops, and you had cardinals, and you had a pope, and what have you. That's where that all comes from. That's called Nicolaitan. All right? And the Lord says, I hate that. He said, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds. He said, I'm commending you, church, for hating that stuff, which I also hate, he said. They were hating the things that God hated. Go to Revelation chapter 2, go down to verse 15. To this church, again, addressing this issue of the Nicolaitans. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So yeah, God hates some stuff. God hates some stuff. And the psalmist hated some stuff. And we should hate some stuff. I'm not recommending again or advocating being a hate-filled person. On the contrary, we're to love even our enemies. But just keep in mind that all hatred is not evil. So being labeled as hateful should not intimidate you. Furthermore, it's not wrong to hate when God hates something. Revelation 2 and verse 6. So don't let that be into you're a hater. You might want to shock them. So you know there's something God, some things God hates. Or is God a hater? Of course, they would have no idea what you're talking about because they're not Bible-based. We are Bible-based. That's, you know, this is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, and we make our decisions, and we have our beliefs, and we hold our beliefs based on the Scripture. And that's the safest position to have. We may also be labeled as exclusive and resistant to diversity. And again, these are just words that are, it's a smokescreen. It's the ad hominem thing. They're not responding to the argument. They're just shooting out a bunch of words. And uh, you say, well, I don't like being called exclusive. Why not? How many gods are there? One. How many saviors are there? How many mediators are there? How many doors are there to heaven? How many ways are there to approach the Father? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man come to the Father but by me. One. How many sources of truth are there? It's in your lap. How many empty tombs were there? One. I don't have a problem with being exclusive. Yeah, I mean, you're going to accuse me of, you know, you Christians are exclusive. Well, show me another God that rose from the dead. Show me another God that became a human being to die for my sins, to save me from destruction 
was buried and rose again the third day from the dead. Show me another one. And don't give me this nonsense about some pagan god that dies when the sun sets and rises again when the sun rises. Then he dies again when the sun sets. Oh, look, resurrection. Go ahead, have that God help you. You'll be a lot of help to you. We have a God who walked this earth. It's recorded historically. He talked, he ministered, he lived. We've got the records of that. We know he died on the cross for the sins of the world. We know he rose from the dead. We'll talk more about that as the day approaches. One of the easiest arguments to prove. We've got a real God who did a real thing. And he's the only one that ever did that and came out of a tomb. Yeah, we're exclusive. And we are resistant to diversity, although heaven is diverse. Kindred people, tongue, and tribe, that's who's in heaven. Heaven's not for one race or one people, I'm sorry, not one race, one people group. Heaven's not, you know, for one, one particular people group. Heaven has got everybody in it, anybody, anybody that trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, whether you're the darker of the brown or the lighter of the brown. We talked about we're all brown. Whether you're dark brown and got a lot of melanin or you have, you're very white and you have a little melanin and everything in between. If you trust Christ as your Savior, you have a home in heaven. Diversity. How about the church? We're diverse. You know, I mean, look around at us. Navajo. Malaysian. Haiti. Philippines. Mexico. Mexican-American. I'm sorry. Is Canada a country? <laughs> Canadian. You know, we're diverse. Arkansasian. You're Arkansasian right there. Ohioan. That's the favorite race, by the way. And, you know, look how diverse we are. What a wonderful church to be in where we've got all the diversity. That's what it's supposed to be like. Now, you can follow Phil Kidd if you want and listen to him rant and rave about black people and every color and what have you. I don't want that. I like the idea we have a church that's diverse because Jesus Christ died for everybody. Praise the Lord for that, man. Joe, what are you? He's Heinz 57. Yeah, there's a spot for him in there. <laughs> but no matter how diverse heaven is and no matter how diverse the church is, the truth is the truth. And here's the thing. The truth of Christianity has been validated and substantiated over two millennia, 2,000 years. You know, the Mormons can't say that. Mormonism began in the mid-1800s. That's, that's how the older they are. Jehovah's Witnesses began in the mid to late 1800s. That's how old they are. Islam began in uh, A.D. 632, I believe, when Muhammad was born. And we would say 7th century Islam began. We're a lot older than that. We're a lot older than that. And Christianity has been proven over and over and over again. Attack it. Hollywood can attack it. The liberals can attack it. The nutcases can attack it. Go ahead. But we have a track record that is proven over a couple thousand years. I mean, just looking at the church age. And I've told you before, in the Roman Empire, as Christianity grew, in spite of being persecuted, say, preacher, Muslim, Islam, they grow. They grow by the sword, convert or die. 
I wish we could evangelize like that. Wouldn't that be great? But Christianity grew in spite of being persecuted, in spite of the Colosseum and being burned at the Christianity grew, and wherever Christianity went, the influence of God went with them, and you see changes throughout the world. I've told you before, this world before Jesus Christ was not a world that had hospitals. They didn't have orphanages. Uh, they didn't have schools or universities. They didn't have that stuff. For the common people, they didn't have that stuff. But Christianity became the influence. Christianity said we need to take care of people that are sick. We need to take care of the elderly. We need to take care of children that have lost their parents. And that's why the majority of hospitals at one time all had some kind of Christian name, if you want to call it Christian, St. George, St. Michael, St. Luke, etc. Now it's Banner Health and this and everything because of the change. But uh, at one time, a hospital was recognized as being religious, recognized as having something to do with Christianity because it was Christianity that established that stuff. But again, we're supposed to change. We're supposed to change our ideas and our beliefs and what have you to adapt to them. And you want to know how long the LGBTQ movement uh, has been popular in the United States? Not that long. And here we have 2,000 years of substantiation and suddenly they're telling us you need to change. No, maybe you need to change. Proverbs 24, 21 says, My son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. And I think Mr. Obama talked about change. We didn't meddle with him. And I'm not meddling with some 2% of society that says I'm supposed to change all my, the way I live based on this 2%. Sorry, it ain't going to happen. We're also labeled as uncritical. You say, well, does that mean we're supposed to be critical? No, what uncritical means, there was a movement in the 1800s and early 1900s called higher criticism. It was among the German theologians of the day, uh, Graf, Wellhausen, um, others, were what were considered higher critics. In other words, when they read the Bible, they didn't take it at face value. You know, you and I are dumb enough to read the Bible and say, well, that's what the Bible says, that's what I'm going to believe. But, oh, no, they're much smarter. They said, let's not take it at face value. Let's figure out what was behind that. Let's see if the manuscripts actually say that. Let's try to figure out what they were thinking when they wrote that. And so the higher critics are not impressed with the doctrine of inspiration. We believe God inspired his word. We believe he preserved it in English. We have it in our laps. And if it says thou shalt not, I think that's what God meant. So we're not... We're uncritical. We just believe what the Bible says. These people believe, again, that you can't read everything and take everything in the Bible at face value, but you have to interpret it through this hermeneutical lens. Hermeneutical means some kind of method of interpretation. And uh, there are numerous methods of interpretation out there, depending what university or college it is. But you have to interpret through that. <coughs> you have to look at the ancient context and how the contemporary currents must be considered how it applies to the stuff in this day and age. We've got to consider that. And there has to be openness. Openness to the possibility that a given author or authors of a biblical text, like Paul or Peter or Matthew or Luke, 
may have reflected personal or cultural biases. So when Paul said, I would, I would that a woman not teach her to usurp the authority of a man, oh, he was just biased. That was the way the culture was. He was biased. And when the Bible talks about a man should not live with mankind as a woman and a woman of womankind, that's just a cultural bias. Well, I just happen to believe that God inspired his word and he's preserved it and we have it today and God didn't change. It is clear, unequivocal, pervasive. The stance in the Bible against this stuff it goes across both testaments. We have two million, two two thousand years, two millennia, of the church existence for our position. So the burden of proof doesn't lie upon us. The burden of proof lies upon them. We've been around two thousand years. You show us where we're wrong. Is what we're talking about. And then. We can also be labeled as having a primitive understandings of relationships. They accuse us of being puritanical. Puritanical, by definition, means of or relating to or characterized by a rigid morality. Well, who defines what rigid morality is? To some of these contemporaries out there, rigid morality is saying that they can't have a glass of wine with their dinner. Or they can't go out to a restaurant and have a glass of wine. Oh, that would be rigid morality. I don't think so. I think it's good morality. But, you know, we're rigid. Your kids will probably say the same thing or your grandkids. Oh, you're rigid. You're rigid. You, you won't let me do what I want to do. And you know why we don't? Because we know better. And then, of course, there's the label that, you know, by opposing that lifestyle, we're promoting violence against the community. And let me say, let me be very, as, as the politicians say, let me be very clear. We don't do violent things. You have no right to do anything violent to anybody unless you're defending yourself. You have no right to be violent or do violence to anybody. I don't care how much you despise it, and I don't care how much you, you, you don't like it, what have you. You do not have the right to do anything violent to people. We are to be wisest serpents and harmless as doves. And I don't see doves getting in too many fights. And they try to fight with the hawks, and they lose every one of them. We are a people. Servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, instructing those that oppose themselves. If peradventure God would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's our position. So don't ever advocate doing bodily harm to anyone, especially LGBTQ. Okay? We don't advocate that. We will contend with them scripturally, with reason, with evidence, with argument, etc., with testimony. That's how we will contend with them. We're not fighting with them. Because they're captives to the same enemy that we have. And it's our mission to try to set them free from his control. They are not the enemy. He's the enemy. Now, that leads us into the main question. 
And that is, how do we know homosexuality is wrong? Okay? You say, well, I know what you're thinking. I know you've got the verses in your head and all that, but that's not what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the process in which how we know homosexuality is wrong. And I'm saying that because you would think that in the church this wouldn't be an issue. But it is. Not this one. But among the evangelicals, there is a group called Evangelicals Concerned. A group of people who are, to all appearances, born-again, Bible-believing Christians. Not Bible-believing in the sense that we are, but they believe the Bible. But also practice LGBTQ behavior. They claim that the Bible doesn't forbid that. Or that its commands aren't valid for today, but were a reflection of the culture in which the Bible was written. Isn't it amazing that God didn't know culture was going to change when he wrote the scriptures? These persons can be orthodox about Jesus and every other area of Christian teaching, but they think that it's biblically permissible to be a practicing sodomite. Okay? So they think it's okay. How do we determine? What is the basis for right and wrong? Well, traditionally, the answer has been that moral values are based in God. And that morality is not separate from God. Morality stems from God's nature. And if God is holy, his laws are going to be holy. And if God is just, his laws are going to be just. Morality stems from him. Morality is as old as God is. And will remain, as, uh, remain the thing until he dies. So it's, it's going to be constant. His morality is constant. And don't get that confused because with Israel, he gave them moral law, but he also gave them civil law and he gave them ceremonial law. Those don't apply to the church. They apply to the nation of Israel. I mean, there was, uh, uh, I guess, civil law. You know, one of the things in civil law for the Jew was if you build a house, and they built flat-roofed houses in those days, you had to build this little tiny wall that went around it. You know what that's called? Parapet wall. You had to have a parapet. So nobody could fall off the roof because they spent a lot of time on the roof. That was the law. You had to have a parapet roof. That's great advice. We do it today. We, have, we do the same thing today. It's a great idea. But that law was given to the Jew. We can adopt it. We can look at it and say, that's a good idea. Let's do that. But it doesn't apply to us. Ceremonial law had to do with the priesthood and the, and the sacrifice and all that. That ended with Jesus Christ. The moral law has always been constant. The moral law was in existence before God created anything. It was in existence throughout the Old Testament. The New Testament is in, in, in existence today. People say, well, we're not under the law. Well, you're not under the civil law, and you're not under the ceremonial law, but you certainly are under the moral law. God, by his very nature, is perfectly holy and good. He's just, loving, patient, merciful, generous. All that is good comes from him and is a reflection of his character. So that's the basis of morality right there. God's perfectly good nature is expressed toward us in the form of moral commandments which constitute our moral duties. For example, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. You shall not murder, steal, commit adultery. These actions are right or wrong based on God's commandments, and his commandments are not arbitrary, but flow from his perfect nature. Okay? Now, is anybody seeing a problem here? 
If society chooses to eliminate God, what have you just eliminated? The basis for morality. And that's where our country is right now. We have a party called the Democrat Party that years ago took God off or out of their platform. And when Biden was camp was it last was it last campaign season, you know he's trying to remember uh, one particular thing. It might have been the Pledge of Allegiance, and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't remember God. So he said that uh, that that thing, you know, yeah. We're in trouble in this country when we've got one of the parties that wants to eliminate God, that thinks it's okay to kill babies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the other party, I'm not exactly sure, they, they all profess to be, you know, conservative, Bible-believing, God-loving, what have you. Um, I've heard them speak, very weak, very weak. But at least they're a lot closer than the other ones are. But that's where our, our country's split between a, a, a group of people who would, would, could care less if God exists and if he does, stay out of my life. And another party over here that says we'll accept the existence of God. If we're going to have morality, this is the party that's going to have to be in control. But even with that, the minds of the people, if you've got somebody that says, I'm an atheist, what they've just said is, I've eliminated any moral aspect out of my life. I'll do what I want to do. I'll live the way I want to live. What works best for me, that's what I'm going to do. Furthermore, morality isn't just in your mind. It's not what you think is right. I think this is right. I don't think it's right. It's not just in your mind. It's real. Morality is a real thing. I know it's a, um, what would be the term? Transient. I think it's kind of a, no, that's not the word. Anyway, um, it's not something you can put your hands on. Tangible, thank you. But it exists, and it's real. When we fail to keep God's commandments, we really are morally guilty. You violate a commandment, and you're going to have a sense of guilt. The violation was real, the guilt is real, and you need His real forgiveness. The problem isn't just that we feel guilty. We really are guilty. And there can be people who say, well, I don't feel guilty about that. Well, you know, your conscience is in the process of being seared. And you may not feel any guilt for it, but the fact of the matter is, if that's what you did, it's a violation, and as a violation, you are guilty, feel it or not. You know, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany did one good thing for, for the world. They did one good thing. So what was that? They give us some good illustrations. And, for example... If Germany would have succeeded in World War II, defeated England, defeated Russia, maybe even come at the United States, but they became so powerful and so impressive in the world that they were able to convince the world that the Holocaust was a good thing, a necessary thing, and there was nothing wrong with it, and got the world to believe that the Holocaust was okay. Was it okay? It's still wrong. It's still wrong because it violated the moral commandments of God. Who cares what the Nazis are saying about it? God says this, this was wrong. And that's the way morality is. 
You'll have people that say, well, I don't think this is wrong, or I think this is right, or what have you. It doesn't matter. What matters is what God thinks. That's what matters. And God reveals what he thinks in the Scripture. So it really is what the Bible says. When we say, well, the Bible says, what we're saying is the morality that stems from God has come through his inspired Scripture, so now you can read it, and now you can see his morality. That's what we mean when we says the Bible says this is wrong. A lot of times people look at that and say, it's just a book. It's a book that represents the eternal God who has an eternal morality that he is infused in the pages of that book so you and I know what is right and what is wrong. Okay? Richard Taylor, and by the way, uh, right and wrong is not a matter of taste either. Oh, that disgusts me. Well, that's not how we determine right or wrong. You know, there's some things that disgust me too. I'm trying to think of a food. I can't think of one. But there's some things that disgust me. But that's not how we, that's not the basis for right or wrong. The basis for right or wrong is in a matter of fact, okay, facts. Richard Taylor was a prominent American philosopher. He's not a Christian. But he's got some sense. He makes this point. He says, the idea of moral obligation is clear enough, provided that reference to some lawmaker higher than those of the state is understood. In other words, our moral obligations can be understood as those that are imposed by God. Well, that's pretty good for a lost philosopher. Our morality comes from something higher than the state, and it's imposed upon us by God. Then he says this, but what if this higher than human lawgiver is no longer taken into account? Well, I don't care what the Bible says. Okay, you're not taking that into account. Does the concept of moral obligation still make sense? Yeah, I mean, think about that. You take God out of the equation. And who is to say that anything is right or wrong? There is no right or wrong when you take God out. What's right for you may not be right for this person right here. What's wrong for you might not be wrong for this person right over here. You know, the Bible says uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. But we've taken God out of that equation and say, okay, men can marry men, women can marry women. And since we've gone that far and there's no moral law that says we can't go beyond that, why is it I can't have four wives? And somebody with the common sense of Mark Twain says, why would anybody want four wives? You'd have four mother-in-laws. That's about the only argument against that. You eliminate God and that's what you get. And then you get the other person says, I want to marry my dog. Now, I love my dog, but we are not going that far. Or one of the latest things, now people are marrying themselves. Who gives the bride away? <laughs> but who's to, who's to stop any of that? There's, there's no way you can point to anything and say, well, that's wrong. Says who? Let's eliminate God. Says who? Well, it won't work. It may not work for you, but it'll work for me. So Taylor's got it right. You eliminate God, and you have nothing that makes any sense as far as morality is concerned. He goes on and says this, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words may remain, but the meaning is gone. The modern age, more or less repudiating the idea 
of a divine lawgiver has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong. That's what we're doing right now in America. We're, we're, we're promoting morality at the same time trying to eliminate God. It's not going to work. He says, um, trying to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong without noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the meaningfulness of right and wrong as well. Thus, even educated persons sometimes declare that such things as war or abortion or the violation of certain human rights are morally wrong, and they imagine that they have said something true and meaningful. Yet educated people do not need to be told, however, that questions such as these have never been answered outside of religion. You don't mix God with that, you don't have anything. So if God does not exist, objective right and wrong do not exist either. Anything goes. So, bringing it back to the subject. You may be approached by a LGBTQ activist. One of these times we're standing out at the corner of Apache Junction or hanging doors, hanging things on doors, or going door to door, or you may have to deal with it in school, on the job, wherever you may be, and somebody's going to say to you, if they know that you're a Christian, they're going to say to you, why, why do you say the homosexual lifestyle is wrong? And you can just as easily say to them, who are you to say that it's right? Okay, so we've got a loggerhead there. How do we determine what the truth is? There has to be a moral law that comes from a higher position. Okay, now, here's the argument. And this is the basic reasoning, okay? And there are four aspects of it. Number one, we are obligated to do God's will. So what if the person is an atheist? Then you have to deal with them as an atheist, not dealing with them with this subject. How many times you run across people say, I believe the Bible was written by man. And you get your verses out trying to show scientific proof and all that. Don't do it that way. The first thing you want to say is, do you believe in God? And if they say, no, I'm an atheist, then don't even argue about the Bible. Their issue is not the Bible. Their issue is the existence of God. Well, do we have to prove to people God exists or try to prove to people that God exists? You know, the scripture says, they that come to God must believe that he is. So that's your battleground right there. But if they do believe in the existence of God, they would have to agree that, you know, we need to do God's will. So question number two then is this. God's will is expressed in the Bible. Now that may lead to another interesting conversation. Three, the Bible forbids homosexual, homosexual behavior. For therefore, this is inductive reasoning, therefore homosexual behavior is against God's will or is wrong. So that's the line of reasoning. We're obligated to do God's will. God's will is in the scripture. The scripture says homosexual behavior is wrong. Therefore homosexual behavior is against God's will or is wrong. Okay? If you can go through those four, that's, that's how you do it. The problem is you'll be challenged more on points two and three. And especially three, does God forbid homosexual behavior? And now we need to take it one step further. What is it that the Bible does condemn as far as condemning that kind of behavior? Here's the thought. Is it orientation or is it act? Is it orientation 
or is it act? Do you realize people can have an orientation for that lifestyle and never express it in actions? Or there can be people that engage in those acts that are not of that orientation. So what the Bible condemns are the actions or the behavior, not the orientation. Now let me clarify that. There are a couple kinds of sins that can be committed. I'm not talking moral or venial. But there are vertical sins, there are horizontal sins. Okay? Jesus said, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Who knows he's doing that? Only God. Vertical sin. So that has to be confessed between you and the Lord. Lord, I'm guilty of that. This is what I've been thinking about. But you've done nothing this way. The Bible says if you hate a brother, it's like committing murder. So you hate somebody in here. Who's that between? You and him. You've not done anything out here. Okay? That's the difference between orientation and act. What we're talking about tonight is the action or the behavior. And what the modern psychology movement is trying to do is they're trying to convince people if you've ever, ever, ever had a thought like that, that's your orientation and therefore you are. And I disagree. I want you to think about this. We're going to be done here in just a minute. I want you to think about this. People say, well, I was born that way. Okay, This is why I do that because I was born that way. How were you born? I don't mean... You know, I stuck my head out first, and the doctor grabbed me. You're born what? You're born in sin, shaping in iniquity. You are born with the sin of your daddy, Adam. And even that little baby, that cute little baby cooing in the crib has a wicked sin nature that eventually will develop into a monster on the inside, just like you. And you know what? We're born that way. Does that mean we have the right to act out that way? We're all born with some kind of issue. People are saying now, well, some people are born and they have a, a predilection for alcohol. Okay, so let's go to the bar and get drunk and destroy our lives. Right? You read the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, read them, adultery, fornication, etc., 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 etc. All these works of the flesh, you're born with that. You're oriented to some of those things, someone more than the others or what have you. That's your orientation in the flesh. So yeah, you're born that way. That does not justify you that you have the right to act that out. Here's a guy that's a serial killer. He's killing women across the country and what have you. Well, there's something in his brain that gives him a predilection to do that. So he shouldn't be, you know, put in jail for life or go to the gas chamber, what have you. He needs to be dealt with psychologically. <sighs> He's a murderer. And you tell the loved ones of the women that have been killed from state to state or city to city, you tell the loved ones of those murdered people that this man is sick and he needs to be treated that way. Tell them that. And they'll tell you, we'll take care of it then. Because we are who we are based on our actions.
We are who we are based on our behavior and on our actions. And you may try to find, out, try to find some psychological excuse for why you do what you do. And there may be some psychological issues in there. I'm not saying they're not. But you are what you are based on what you do. You go out and kill people, you're a murderer. I'm sorry you had a bad upbringing. I'm sorry you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. I'm sorry for all that stuff. But if you kill people, you're a murderer and you're going to be dealt with as a murderer. And I have a hunch, just a hunch, that if we dealt with murderers like that, there'd be less people trying to use the same argument. That maybe there might even be a sudden healing process among all those people. Say, oh, I'm healed from that. I don't feel like killing anymore. We need to figure out how to do the justice part of this stuff. But it's the action, horizontal, action towards other people. Some sin is vertical between you and God. And if you can just keep it that way and never do the act, you're not guilty. But if you have to end up doing the act, it's the action that makes you guilty. Okay, we'll pick up more of this next week. Any questions or any comments? All right. Well, let's have a good week this week. Try to invite somebody to church. Uh, remember where you're supposed to be Thursday night and then Saturday again at uh, AJ. Thank you for coming. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, trying to show us how to sort all this stuff out. Live in a crazy society, Father. Thank you for giving us some kind of wisdom to try to sort all this stuff out and make sense of it to make sure we get your idea. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the source of morality. And even some of your moral commandments may go against what we feel like doing. We are still grateful that you have set for us the parameters of right and wrong. And Lord, help us to be a group of people that will try to take that idea to this crazy world out here. And this world will understand that yes, there is a right and there is a wrong. And that you are the answer to every need that they have. Bless these folks, Lord, as they go home tonight. Give them safe traveling mercies. Bless them on the job or wherever they may be this week. Bring us back safely on Thursday night. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. You are dismissed. Thank you.